I'm Sahil Desai. I'm Kevin Tidmarsh. And this is Hidden Pomona. Hidden Pomona is a podcast about the forgotten, obscure, and overlooked parts of Pomona College's history. We'll be releasing episodes every other Friday until the end of April. Stick with us as we uncover the hidden history of our school. Myron Crafts was as close as you can get to being the personification of Manifest Destiny. He was born in 1816 to a distinguished lineage. His ancestors had come over on the Mayflower. He could have led a successful life in his hometown of Waitley, Massachusetts, if he'd wanted. But underneath it all, he was itching to move west. Myron started his journey west when he went to Michigan in 1853, working in a few different business ventures across the state. Then in 1861, when he was 45 years old, he became one of the first settlers in what would later become Redlands. When Myron arrived, population of Southern California was tiny. In the entire city of LA, there were only 4,300 people. Myron gave up his life as a businessman and devoted his life to his farming and his God. He was an influential minister in the 1860s and 1870s, and he was the first person to propose the idea of a college of a New England type in Southern California affiliated with the Congregationalist Church. A year after Crafts died, in 1887, his idea finally came to fruition, of course, as Pomona College. Myron Crafts gives one of the very few glimpses into the connection between the history of Claremont and the Native American communities that lived in the area for millennia. On his ranch, Myron was known to employ Native Americans, and according to Charles Burt Sumner, basically Pomona's first president, Myron had a good relationship with Native Americans even if there's reason to be pretty skeptical of Sumner's writing. For one, Myron supported the Homestead Act. That act was very unpopular with Native Americans, understandably so, given that it promised settlers 160 acres of land each to move out west. But at the very least, there's reason to believe that he wasn't enslaving Native Americans or exploiting their labor, according to Roseanne Welch, a lecturer at Cal Poly Pomona and Mount San Antonio College. Who studied Native Americans in the area? You know, as tribal peoples were losing their land and their status and all of that, um, the jobs they knew were working on such places, working with horses, working in the land, and all of that. So, like I always tell people when we think about American cowboys, we think about John Wayne, if they know John Wayne at all. But they certainly think of a white guy, right? Um, if you go to the Chinatri, or now it's called the Autry National Western Heritage Museum or something like that over in Griffith Park, they have a wonderful display of sort of the history of the media that shows the birth of this sort of cowboy that goes all the way up through the modern day and, you know, Brokeback Mountain and all this stuff and Clint Eastwood. But their whole museum is dedicated to the true history of the West. And there, in the photographs of the kinds of men who worked on California ranches, you see... Mexican-American, or straight Mexican men, obviously. African-American men, because many who fought in the Civil War and didn't want to go back to the South um, stayed out here, and so they had skills, of course, and that sort of thing. 
And you see um, tribal men, Native American men. Um, those are the broad groups of people who worked on the ranches and were truly American cowboys. There are always going to be a few European-American guys in there, but not many as we're led to believe. So I believe that they were trained men. They got jobs in such places, and they got paychecks. They, they weren't wonderful, but they were certainly paid for their skills, and they would be able to move on. They didn't have to stay. The town of Claremont is pretty young. It was only incorporated in 1907, and the land was sparsely inhabited when Pomona College set up shop here in 1888. But the area has a rich, rich history. People have been living here for at least 7,000 years. Myron Crafts most likely had contact with the Tongva tribe, which had settlements stretching from Long Beach up to the San Fernando Valley and all the way east to San Bernardino. The Tongva had a settlement in the area now known as Claremont called Toro Jotunga, which translates to the place below Snowy Mountain. The Snowy Mountain, of course, is what we now know as Mount Baldy. It was a fairly typical training community of around 45 to 50 homes. For centuries before Crafts arrived in Southern California and Pomona College was founded, there were a lot of Native American communities in Claremont and across the area. But unfortunately, these communities weren't bound to last long once Spanish colonists started coming. The San Gabriel Mission was founded in 1771 by two Spanish missionaries who were under the direction of Father Junipero Serra. Serra is an especially unpopular figure among the native people of Mexico and the Southwest, given the conduct of the missionaries who were trying to convert the native peoples. Essentially, native people living under the mission were forced to surrender their cultures and religions and embrace the Spanish Catholic way of life, or else. The Tongva, whose name means people of the earth, took on a new name after the mission they lived on. The missionaries called them the Gabrielino Indians. Um, and largely that was, again, the other thing that the Europeans used against the Indians, which was the difference in religion and the fact that if the Native Americans believed in many gods and the Europeans believed in the one god, the Europeans must have been right, because clearly that's the best thing to believe. So having women involved in religion, and now the argument from the Native Americans were, or was, excuse me, that they were willing to accept a new god in their pantheon of gods, but of course the mission, uh, mission padres didn't want that. They wanted them to forego all their previous beliefs and only focus on the one god, and so this was causing issues. By the time that some of the early founders of Pomona College arrived in Claremont, much of the Tongva population had been decimated by a major smallpox outbreak in 1862, a generation before the college's founding. After the outbreak, the population of the Tongva in the area fell to around 4,000, a fraction of what it once was. When the founders of the college actually came to Claremont, there was barely a trace of the original people. The accounts of interactions between Pomona students and Native Americans around this time are tantalizingly sparse. In an account of Pomona's history, Charles Sumner wrote that, in 1913, quote, a party of wild Indians, befittingly mounted, invaded the town soon after daybreak, racing through the streets brandishing their weapons and giving the war whoop at every turn. 
it would be great to have more context or information or anything about this event. But that's all that Sumner mentions. We're left to guess what happened that day. One of the most enduring legacies of the interactions between early Pomona people and the Native Americans of the area is the song Torchbearers, originally titled Ghost Dance. The song was written in 1890, and it's been performed countless times in a million different versions since then. The story goes like this. Frank Brackett, an astronomy professor, went with David Barrows, a student at the time who was interested in the local tribes. They went a ways off campus to the San Jacinto Mountains, around where the town of Idlewild is today. This land belonged to the Cahuilla people, who'd lived in that area for thousands of years. Brackett and Barrows ostensibly went up there to observe the native people, and the two wrote down what they could remember of a Cahuilla dance that they'd observed. At a college celebration soon after, they broke into the chant they'd half remembered. But it was a huge hit. Someone wrote words, and another person wrote a melody. The finished product was titled Ghost Dance, and before anyone knew it, Barrows and Brackett's trip up to the mountains was memorialized. And it was apparently quite the sensation among Pomona students at the time. Some archival photos show members of Pomona's glee club performing the song dressed in white robes, dancing around a mock-up of a ritual fire. Fun fact, Barrows went on to become the first person to receive a PhD in anthropology from the University of Chicago, and eventually he became the president of the University of California system. A lot of his work as an anthropologist had to do with Native Americans. His doctoral dissertation was titled The Ethnobotany of the Cahuilla Indians of Southern California, and he conducted his research by returning to Southern California over the summer. So his relationship with the tribes of Southern California wasn't just some passing craze. That being said, though, he and Brackett got a number of key facts wrong. For one, they interpreted the Cahuilla dance as warlike, and the lyrics reference Indian maids and warriors. But they were just completely off base with this. It wasn't a war dance at all, like they assumed. An article in the Pomona magazine recounting their trip noted that the shaman who was leading the dance was actually advocating for racial harmony. It was a peaceful dance. In its original incarnation, the song also included bits of nonsense words that were supposed to approximate the Cahuilla language. But neither Brackett nor Barrows spoke the Cahuilla language at the time, so they did the best they could to transcribe the refrain they heard at the dance. Hanateratoma is what they ended up with. But no one's been able to say for sure what these nonsense syllables were actually supposed to mean. I hope Barrows fact-checked that dissertation better than the song he wrote. I can only hope that's the case. Uh, anyway, Brackett actually thought the lyrics to the song were silly, reportedly. So he was probably happy in 1930 when English professor Ramsey Lewis rewrote the lyrics and retitled the song Torchbearers. We have a recording of that song performed by the Pomona Glee Club in 1954, so you can hear it for yourself. Oh, 
was definitely a spirited rendition of that song, rescued from an old 78 or something. If you've heard Torchbearers being performed in the last couple of years, you're likely not to have heard this version. A lot of the lyrics in the version you just heard have been rewritten, and the nonsense syllables and the direct references to Native Americans were taken out. That being said, these measures didn't appease everyone, and Native American students over the years have considered it disrespectful to their heritage, so certain Glee Club members were allowed to sit out if they were uncomfortable singing it. At the moment, the Glee Clubs retired the song indefinitely. Controversies on campus involving Native Americans extend beyond just a torchbearer's song. In 1959, the Pomona and CMC football teams began exchanging a Native American peace pipe as a trophy for the winner of the annual game between the two rivals. The peace pipe, also known as the sacred pipe, is common across many Native American tribes in the Great Plains and West. It's usually made of clay and used to smoke tobacco and various herbs. After members of the Indigenous Students Alliance on campus expressed concerns about using a sacred object as a trophy, both teams decided to finally retire it in 2013. In 2014, the Indigenous Students Alliance created a proposal for a Native American and Indigenous Studies Department at the Claremont Colleges. While they gathered over 500 signatures and created a potential track of studies based off of existing courses, there's been no action on the part of the administration to create a potential major or department since then. While it's been almost 300 years since the missionaries first arrived in the San Gabriel Valley and began the slow decline in the Native American population, many descendants of indigenous people reside in the area today. Tony Cerda is an elder of the Ohlone tribe, which has ancestrally lived in the Bay Area, but many of the tribe's members were pushed down to Southern California by encroaching white settlers in the 1860s. We're all indigenous people, so we're all the same people. It's just political borders that they put up there and split split all the people up. So a lot of people, they don't really know their history or know their, their connections, their roots. So uh, we kind of stick to our, our roots that we know about. Our people came from the Bay Area in the, in the, early, in the early 1860s when they came down here. Uh, because of the atrocities that were going up in Central California, there was a lot of atrocities going on there at the time. And so our people, you know, at that time, the policy of the United States was extermination. After the, 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 the other policies that they had, the Dodge Act and all that kind of stuff, when they fi- finally got to California, they didn't have no place to push the native people, so their policy became the policy of extermination. So that's when they started putting bounties on, on our people's heads and stuff like that. And the worst of it was there in, in Central California. So our people decided to come down south. Scott Scoggins, the Native American Pipeline Director and Outreach Liaison at the Draper Center, said that today, many of the Native American tribes in the area are desperately trying to get recognition from the federal government. It's a shared territory. So that's, it's complex, you know, what's happened to California Indians in particular. Um, there was never any treaties signed with America, with California Indians. There were mission Indians. So, um, they were all given, uh, they were part of rancherias. 
that's that was the reservation that they had they don't have reservations they call them rancherias so it was big lands of track that were given to people and and that's how they kind of yeah but a lot of so there's a something very important that's to distinguish that a lot of California Indians, meaning from this area here, the Tongva, the Ohlone, they're Los Angeles County obviously is a very rich, you know, and for you to be federally recognized, you have to have a land base, right? And the Tongva and the Ohlone, it's impossible for them to get Los Angeles, Hollywood, or any of these cities back, right? So they're kind of stuck in a really unique position where they could never, well, I can't say never, but it's going to be very difficult for them to achieve federal recognition, which is like, it's like when, it's like an amazing thing, you know, when tribes have this, because A, you get government-to-government relationships now with the, with the United States government. You get access to education funds, health, um, in some cases, if your tribe is big enough, um, police department, you know, those kinds of um, help. But where these folks fall into is they don't qualify for that. Yet they have their language, their dances, their culture, they meet regularly. You know, in the history books, it says they're extinct, you know, but I mean, I could connect you to some of them right now, you know. So it's, um, you know, so this area here is really complex, you know, in the landscape of American Indians. The Tongva today in LA remain dedicated to preserving and reviving their culture. They perform blessings and ceremonial dances across LA, including at major events like the inauguration of the Los Angeles mayor. They're an active group, um, but they were very busy trying to be involved um, trying to get more recognition in general. Uh, they have an event every year at University High School uh, in L.A., which happens to be on ground that was declared as sacred to them, and they got the city and the state, I don't know about the federal government, to basically grant them that that was a sacred area. And so while the school had been built earlier, so you can't move the school, there are some, um, there's a, water feature in the area that they're allowed to come to. And so once a year, they have a major gathering on that site. Um, and so that's a really beautiful thing. I went to that a couple times. Um, and there was some talk I know about how could they get ownership to it. I think they have rights to visit it, but they can't own it because it belongs to the state. So they're in the middle of that. Um, so yeah, basically now it's about reviving the culture. You know, they try to have events. Of course, they're trying to get um, involved in college classes and have more people find out. Um, yeah, so, and that's pretty much what's happening to any any of the formerly, you know, former tribal peoples. They're just trying to make sure we don't lose them in the story. It's hard to find much of any remnants of these Native American tribes in Claremont today, besides Kawea Park, right by Claremont High School. Julia Bogany, a Tongva elder who lives in the area, knows this all too well. It's like we're invisible, right? So I'm constantly fighting for us to be not only seen, because of course in the Claremont Colleges, we are seen quite a bit. People know us, and there's a lot that has been done for us as, you know, as a people, but it needs to get into a total community.
At least in recent years, the Claremont Colleges, and especially Pomona and Pitzer, have made attempts to better reach out to Native American communities. Scott Scoggins spoke to us about what the Claremont Colleges are doing now to foster better relationships with Indigenous groups. I have to say that Pitzer and Pomona College have really taken a lead. Um, basically, first, it kind of bubbled up at Pitzer first, you know, I would say, with uh, Pitzer's Native American summer pipeline to college. I know it's a long name. But about seven years ago, this, um, this um, summer program was funded to get local Native American youth into college, like a college prep. Are you familiar with the PACE program? Something similar like that, but focused with American Indians, um, but also being culturally sensitive. So that's really big in our community. So culturally sensitive and academia, bringing them together, right? So that has really, really helped get the Claremont Colleges out in Indian country. So people are really like, wow, you know, what's going on over here? You know, they're, they're inviting us, you know, to the colleges and all this. The program is going on its seventh year. Now we're attracting students from Canada, indigenous students, mind you, from Canada, all over the United States, Mexico. We don't just open it up to just First Nations here. It's all over, you know, that are interested. So it's kind of like a mini UN, you know, that of Native indigenous kids here. So that's been a big thing um, that's really kind of helped kickstart everything. Um, then I would say Pomona has really helped take the lead with the powwow, this thing right here. Mm -hmm. You know, um, the past, we're going on our fourth year now, you know, with the pow powwow. David, President Oxby has been very generous with Native initiatives. That's what he's deemed it. Um, and, you know, just focusing on outreach to American Indian communities. And so we're going on our fourth annual powwow. In um, on January 31st, we had, um, it was called the Tribal Nations, um, what was it called? Um, college Exploration Fair for Tribal Nations. So we had over 300 Native American youth and families, you know, running around Pomona College, man. It was so cool to see so many brown Indian people, you know, just, it was awesome, you know. So, you know, these types of events, the powwow, the college exploration fair, plus, you know, we're working closely with a lot of professors at Pitzer College Eric Steinman, I just got to mention his name. He's been like key, man, in helping me, you know, build these relationships with Pitzer. But here at Pomona College, April Mays, Char Miller, Val Thomas, and all of this has the Draper Center here. It's important that you talk about the Draper Center has been ground zero for this. Maria Tucker has really been, you know, visionary in opening up the space and also realizing that we have an obligation, right, to the First Nations, right, that our, you know, these colleges are built on, you know. Even despite these efforts, Julia Bogany said that she wishes that the Tongva were better known around Claremont. Uh, well, we're still not really known. I think the colleges know we're there. Uh, some people will tell me, well, people, in the, if I talk about you downtown, they don't know who you are. You know, they don't know who the Tongva people are. I, I think one of the important things besides Korea Park, you know, that they've been working on that, uh, and, 
and I said, I, I don't mind it being um, Tongva and their neighbors, right? Instead of just Korea Plus. Because Polly the Korea did work out there, right, in the ranches. But also the fact that people only know us as the, in Claremont as the Indians of Indian Field and not as the Tongva people. The history of the original inhabitants of this land might be forgotten at the Claremont Colleges. But you pay close enough attention, fragments of the past are all around us. Hop on the 210 going east. You'll run into Rancho Cucamonga before long. Cucamonga was the name of a Tongva city on the main trade route. Or you can head west on the same freeway, toward Azusa, then the LA neighborhoods of Tahunga and Pacoima. Then head down to the 101 headed west you might be able to catch a glimpse of the Kawanga Pass on your way over to Topanga State Park. Whether or not you realized it, all of those place names were derived from the Tongva language. Perhaps the only reminder for many that the people of the earth were here first. This episode was reported, written, edited, and produced by Sahil Desai and Kevin Tidmarsh. Kevin produced the music. Hidden Pomona is recorded in the studios of KSPC. Thanks to Julia Bogany, Scott Scoggins, Tony Serda, and Roseanne Welsh for taking the time to talk to us. We'd also like to thank Aidan Orley, Special Collections at Honold Mudd Library and the Claremont League of Women Voters. The writings and historical accounts of Mark Frank Acuna were also invaluable to our research. And, as always, special thanks to Susan McWilliams for the editorial guidance. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Hidden Pomona. have any feedback or suggestions, email us at hiddenpomona at gmail.com. I'm Kevin Tidmarsh. And I'm Sahil Desai. And this is Hidden Pomona.